Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, the forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. Today, Jonathan and I will be speaking with Debashish Banerjee, Chair of the East-West Psychology Department at the California Institute of Integral Studies. We will discuss with Debashish the history and mission of the Institute of East-West Psychology in particular, and the nature and value of integral education. All right, it's good to be here. My name is Jonathan Kay. How are you, Stefan? Yeah, doing well this morning. Thanks, Jonathan. We're here this morning with uh, Debashish Banerjee, the chair of East-West Psychology, and um, excited to get into talking a little bit about East-West Psychology as an academic um, territory and as a department, and um, and a little bit about how Debashish came into the, the program. Welcome, Debashish. How are you today? Hi, Jonathan. I'm well. Good. Well, would you like to start by um, briefly talking about how you came into um, um, contact with uh, CIS initially, and then a little bit about how you ended up in the the department here as as our chair? Uh, So uh, in 2016, there was a new chair, uh, endowed chair that was started at CIIS in the name of its founder, uh, Haridas Chaudhary, and uh, I was contacted by the emeritus uh, president, Robert McDermott, um, as a possible candidate, and uh, then was appointed to the Haridas Chaudhary professorship in Indian philosophies and cultures. Uh, my background is in Uh, Indian philosophy, the work of Sri Aurobindo, who was uh, one of the founding inspirations behind behind CIIS uh, at its beginning. Haridas Chaudhary himself was a scholar and student of Sri Aurobindo. And uh, part of the mission for the chair was to continue the work that Haridas Chaudhary was interested in uh, personally and that he promoted. So that's what brought me in from the fall of 2016. And uh, East-West psychology is uh, an area that uh, Haridas Chaudhary had actually started. In fact, I believe he started it as East-West philosophy. But uh, over time, there were a number of shifts. And uh, the philosophy department ended up becoming philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness, while East-West stuck on to East-West psychology. Uh, From a certain viewpoint, that's even more appropriate because the dialogue of the East and the West is best served, in my opinion, by talking about human experience. Uh, what are the capacities of the human being in terms of consciousness? So it is really that dialogue uh, that interested me as well. It it interests me. And so there was an opening for the chair, and I was interviewed for it and brought into East-West Psychology as the chair. Uh, I believe in... 2017. Could you describe a little bit about the roots of integral yoga in India and how Haridash ended up coming to uh, the West and and how he really furthered the work of Sri Aurobindo here at the institution? Yes. So integral yoga is a form of yoga that has been started by Sri Aurobindo and uh, you know the term integral in California Institute of Integral Studies uh, takes its origin from that. 
Oh, what is integral yoga? It's a rather big topic to cover in a few sentences, but uh, the integral is partly an integration of the yoga traditions of India, partly an integration seen from the viewpoint of what is the whole person? Uh, how do we define uh, integra integrality is really uh, coming to union of plural and heterogeneous strands uh, of existence. So how do we look at all this plurality? It's important to recognize plurality and to aim for the union of this plurality, to find a point of unity in the plurality. So I think uh, this is what Sri Aurobindo attempted with his yoga. And Haridas Chaudhary was... Uh, a great scholar in that, in, uh, an original thinker in that, in that field. Uh, so that has been continued in a more broad way in, at CIIS. And East-West psychology also does that, in a sense, in a broader way. Because we can also talk about the integration of cultures. We can talk about the integration of disciplines. Uh, so that those forms of inquiry are coded into the understanding of integral uh, as we uh, see it today. I was interested, Debashish, in, uh, when you were speaking about the movement from uh, philosophy to psychology, knowing you know what little I, I know about Shirobindo's philosophy, I think that these two uh, are kind of... Um, in interplay with one another. And I, I'm wondering maybe if you would be willing to maybe articulate a little bit more around that in terms of the integral. Certainly, uh, Stefan. Philosophy and psychology, uh, if we take it to uh, Indian, an Indian understanding where it began with Sri Aurobindo, uh, we can use them as loose translators for the terms darshan and yoga. So darshan is the Sanskrit term that uh, is usually translated as philosophy. And yoga is a kind of applied psychology. Uh, Sri Aurobindo himself calls it a practical psychology. So the entire yoga tradition in India travels on these two wings, as it were. They're, they're uh, complementary because... It's the practice of yoga that is the practical psychology. Behind it is the theoretical psychology, the models of the psyche, uh, which are handled to come to a goal of becoming. And to do that, one has a provisional map of uh, cosmology, one may say, which is practical in the sense that that is what aids us to arrive at that uh, transformation. That's the goal of the becoming. So the, 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 the philosophy that we are talking about as yoga philosophy is really a study of these variant cosmologies and uh, you know existential types of uh, phenomenological types of uh, approaches to reality, uh, and they go hand in hand with the psychology, whether we see it as a theoretical model of the psyche or we see it as processes of transformation. I like the idea of cosmological maps. And that uh, yo the yoga, the psychology, or the, the yoga um, as the applied and practical way of working through that cosmology to the the perceived goal. Exactly, and it, it brings up a question right away because this is really the dialogue of cultures. Uh, so we find that uh, the idea of a cosmological map uh, that aids a practical psychology is not necessarily the way in which either psychology or metaphysics is looked at in the West, in the academic discipline, uh, these academic disciplines, uh, because Western academia is resting on a scientific idea of uh, uh, or objective uh, of inquiry. 
And the scientific objective of inquiry with regard to philosophy is to arrive at a absolute understanding or universal understanding of reality. And if we say that uh, metaphysics of philosophy aids a practical psychology, we are immediately relativizing the field of philosophy. We are saying that there can be many philosophies that each of them uh, serve uh, a certain goal of becoming. We are making these maps not absolute anymore. We are not looking for a universal understanding anymore, whether in science, psychology, or philosophy. We are looking to study various uh, paths to arrive at various formulations of becoming, what one can become. So also within this, there is the notion of the human. What is the human? The human is not a fixed essence. Uh, usually that is a question that is not asked in academia. We all we take ourselves for granted because, again, beginning from the uh, early uh, assumptions of science, uh, the human is a empirical inquiry. We define ourselves in terms of an average of characteristics, what makes us human. But uh, the whole idea of the human with regard to the yoga tradition, yoga philosophies and psychologies is that the human is transitional. The human is changing and the, the end of the human is partly in the hands of the specific human and the goals they choose for themselves. I've been hearing in your in your conversations or in, in, your, in your classes that you've been articulating this idea. I mean, it's relatively new to me in our conversations. Uh, it's something that I've considered before, but uh, you've articulated it in a way that's really made me think about it recently. Uh, this idea of the, the human being or the cosmos itself as um, in constant motion. So, there, so the articulation of um, um, any, any idea or set of ideas uh, in some ways runs the risk of reifying and then you lose the fluid and evolutionary nature of what it is that we're looking at. And I think about this in terms of, uh, of higher education where, you know, in the classroom, we may be talking about uh, a research methodology, uh, which, which is a very particular lens through which we study a subject or just the subject itself, where we may look at a particular moment in history, a particular individual, a partic an individual's a specific aspect of their thought, one book that they wrote, one sentence that they, they uttered. And there, we always run the risk of reifying if we say, no, this is it. This is what they meant. This is the goal. This is, And the, the way that you're articulating it, it's, it, it feels to me much more open and spacious. And I think that in, in terms of my own experience with students, for instance, it can be kind of unnerving for for students because they because the certainty we, we lose the certainty in a way yeah true that's true uh and yes uh, i think we do need to destabilize that certainty because in a way we are not looking at a fixed world we are not looking at fixed images of people we are looking at uh, changes in the personality of every individual every discipline paradigm shifts but more importantly, we are looking at interpretations. And uh, when we are talking about students and reading certain things, the question is, whose interpretation are they getting? Uh, people often don't ask that. And I think that's one of the first things that we should do in academia, uh, particularly in our time, which is really a time of uh, contested views that are trying to propagandize themselves into truth. Uh, this is happening a lot right now due to the proliferation of mass media. Uh, so 
to arrive at a interpretive view that works for oneself as a goal of becoming and to allow others to arrive at interpretive views that work for themselves uh, is the very basis of pluralism. And I think that has to be, uh, in my view at least, the foundation of academic studies today. Great. Yeah, this is getting into some of the, the work that you've been teaching in terms of the an integral hermeneutic or an imminent hermeneutic. Could you talk a little bit more about the importance of the imminence in this process and also how that plays into the integral, um, coming from the integral yoga in a hermeneutical um, sense? So, Jonathan, uh, I think I'll, I'll first touch on the integral uh, because I think what we are discussing right now is really bringing us to a closer understanding of your first question, what is the integral? And we are, when we are talking about diversity or pluralism and finding a, a point of union, uh, this is what I mean. The point of union is not obvious. The point of union does not even exist. The point of union is a vanishing point, a perspectival vanishing point. And the pluralism is not something that can assume it. Uh, we are working towards it. A field of studies is one that actually opens up a variety of comparative possibilities and synthetic possibilities. Comparative studies uh, often runs the risk of essentialism. We are comparing things that exist in stasis, but we are not. We are comparing things that change each other even as we are comparing them. So it is justified to actually open up a field of studies that is not, not merely comparative, not even transdisciplinary, but synthetic, that forms new holes, that forms new approaches to becoming. Uh, new goals of becoming. So I think that's when we talk about East-West psychology, for example. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure you probably have already discussed the fact that we are when we started as East-West psychology, but we are not really, uh, you know, restricted to East and West in East-West psychology. We, we are also North and South, or we like to call it Earth and World. Uh, so all these dialogues, are dialogues in the making, and they are dialogues in the making of the integral. But the integral is not here. The integral is a, a paradox. The integral is plural and un, un, unity, unit, unitarian at the same time. So that's why you know to talk about it as a field of studies is is proper rather than to talk about it as a defined kind of realized thing that exists in itself you know so that is that is one uh, approach to your question about the integral but you also asked about imminent hermeneutics and this is a very interesting point because this is the whole point about uh, are we subjects studying objects that are separated from us uh, are we subjects that are unconsciously changing ourselves and also changing the subject as we are going along um, in a projective kind of manner? Or are we subjects that are in dialogue with an object that actually are consciously, uh, you know, replicating some of the vectors of becoming that we are in, engaged with in our lives? And that's where we come to imminent hermeneutics. Imminent hermeneutics means that uh, what we are interpreting, we are trying to enter into union with. Can we become one with something in it? Uh, and what you become one with may not be what I become one with. Uh, finding uh, there is no one imminent hermeneutics. Imminent hermeneutics is a way by which we enter into relation with what we are studying or what we are talking about uh, that engages us and engages what we are interested in in terms of our goal of becoming and finds it in what we are studying. And in doing so, uh, 
enters into a kind of dance with what we are studying, you know, enters into a kind of uh, a, 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 a synergistic, uh, you know, third reality. And uh, that is what we are trying to present. Not uh, a, a, an imminent hermeneutics does not result in an explanation of what we are doing or what we are approaching. It turns out it it ends up as a, a, a independent formulation of the forces that are released in our engagement. This is brilliant. I had been thinking a lot lately about with this without having a um, without having a, a word for it. I love this phrase "imminent hermeneutics" and your explanation of it. I was um, looking at, uh, you know, the, my own class that I'm teaching this semester, for instance, uh, and uh, the the difficulty that the students are having to kind of enter into the texts. Now, the texts are fragmentary in a way, although the editor of the of the collection has tried to create a narrative that's repeated for each tradition. Uh, but as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking of there's something called the five C's of history. That when historians are kind of looking at phenomena, historical phenomena, they have to they have to take take into consideration the fact that things change over time, that each uh, instantiation of a historical process that they look at has its own context, that there are uh, uh, there's a chain of causality, and that chain is multi-dimensional that so that there's complexity to what it is that they're looking at and contingency also so i i think i you know i often say to people that my if i have one philosophical kind of um attitude or one one way in which i am attempting to kind of interact you know even in my job as a program manager is to <clears throat> kind of operate with um unconditional positive what they call unconditional positive regard and I, I think in my research it's the same way because if you enter into if you enter into uh, a set of ideas uh, with that unconditional positive regard you find that uh, each idea each individual each phenomenon that you're looking at is a potential vehicle that can take you towards the goal maybe maybe each one can't take you there completely, but it requires a certain suspension of like the hermeneutic of suspicion, for instance. If you operate under that, that you're going to be picking things apart. But this way, to have an imminent hermeneutics and an hermeneutics of positive regard, then you can enter into it, these th ideas into an, in, in an open way, in, a, in an unbounded, horizonless way, if you will, and really just kind of uh, open to the myriad directions that any of these ideas can take you. And it feels much more spacious and open to me. Yes, yes, Stefan. I'd like to add, though, that the hermeneutics of suspicion can also be part of it because the hermeneutics of suspicion looks at whatever we are reading as themselves interpretations, this is, this is the difference between a way of looking at texts which takes them for granted and a way of looking at texts which actually takes them as, as interpretations, as tissues of plurality, uh, you know, that are themselves engaged in the same process that you're engaged in. And so uh, that, that's what the hermeneutics of, that's what the suspicion is. The suspicion is not to reify the text. The suspicion is to open it up because you are looking under the surface at what it doesn't necessarily say, but what uh, exposes itself once one uh, probes it. Uh, but when one does that, I think uh, I really appreciate the five fives that you talked about, uh, Stefan, as uh, you know the, the 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 things to look out for when one is uh, investigating uh, an academic subject. Uh, I'd like to add that other element that you mentioned to the five fives, which is that uh, when we when we study, when we read, we are being transformed. Uh, there are things uh, which actually change the direction of our lives as we are reading something 
you know, this this may happen to the layperson. One doesn't even need to be an academician. You read something and it completely changes the direction of your life because you um, assimilate a, a force from it. And so I think we, we would like to call it something like auto-hermeneutics or auto-phenomenology. We talk about auto-ethnography. Um, auto-ethnography actually looks at the situation of the subject. Um, you know, what are we, uh, you know, what is our background? What, what, what is our context? Uh, how are we coming at the subject? But I think uh, there's more than that. There is autophenomenology. Autophenomenology is really about how whatever I'm investigating is transforming me. What are the experiences that I'm having? What are the forces that are generated in me and coming into union? Uh, and in that process, uh, imminent hermeneutics becomes possible. Imminent hermeneutics includes... Uh, autophenomenology from that point of view. It also seems like it can uh, challenge the notion of the subject as uh, this kind of transcendental subject. In the, and so in an imminent sense, bringing the practitioner of this hermeneutics into relation with non-human subjectivities and questioning the kind of the, the interface between the inside and the outside. It seems like it can be very experimental and lead to tra like radical transformation. That's that's what it, that's what's exciting about it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, these are new methodologies, new research methodologies. Uh, but I think they are the ones that are appropriate for the kinds of inquiry that uh, we are trying to open up uh, in CIIS and East West, particularly East West psychology. Uh, coming from this uh, point, then, could we talk a little bit about integral education? I mean, we've been developing the ideas of an imminent and integral hermeneutic in terms of how the department fields the understanding of, or even the school, California Institute of Integral Studies in general. Could you talk a little bit about the notion of integral education and how that's practiced in the department and the school? So, uh, integral education uh, also implies a whole person approach to education. So that, uh, you know, we uh, today talk about multiple forms of knowing. That's almost like a buzzword or buzz phrase inside CIIS. Everybody's using that. That If there's one thing that everybody uh, agrees on at CIIS, it's the need for multiple ways of knowing. And multiple ways of knowing uh, implies already a departure from the text-oriented intellectual understanding of uh, you know things that uh, forms traditional academics. Uh, how can we uh, apprehend a reality or whatever we think of um, as an object of study uh, emotionally uh, in terms of our even our somatic responses uh, in terms of our deep contemplations, uh, the cosmic experiences they may open up in us, uh, all these are forms of uh, understanding. They're forms of, uh, of knowing. So uh, how does... Uh, you know, a, 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 an institute enable some of these things? Uh, both in research as well as in collective, uh, you know, experience uh, through you know assimilation and through uh, encouragement to these forms of of knowing and the ability to write them. Uh, I think that is part of uh, what we are looking at as integral uh, education. Integral education means, of course, more than that. Because again, the question comes in of both plurality and unity. Uh, we are talking about decentralizing the um, emphasis on a rational understanding of things uh, as the primary mode of knowing. But uh, we also have to talk about a medium of translation. People often lose sight of that. Uh, academics is really a medium of translation. Because you may have various kinds of uh, experiences. 
how do we bring it to a language that is understandable and part of a general lexicon that is going to be uh, uh, approached across the board um, in a universal academic sense? We don't need to come to universal consensus or understanding, but what we do need to come to is universal communication. And that is approached through the, you know, the standardized methodologies of uh, archiving, you know, knowledge. And so the translation of our experiences, it's always, all translation is approximate. All translation is creative and all translation is political. These are things that we cannot get past. We have to accept that. And at the same time, our various experiences uh, at different levels and different forms of knowing have to come into translation into an academic language. We have to engage uh, these forms of experience with a kind of a rational lexicon. You know, we, we, don't, we don't privilege it, but we uh, make it a partner in, in the entire process. And in, in that, we enable, uh, you know, voices to talk to each other uh, and move along towards that vanishing point that we are talking about, that the, the never approachable, uh, the always approachable, never uh, reachable vanishing point from the viewpoint of the mind, you know? And that's something we have to realize. Academics does not exist to kind of preempt the process, um, you know, and talk about something that has already been reached. Um, Academics is always a discipline that enables uh, pluralism um, and holds a relative... Uh, position. I mean, the, the 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 mind, the place of the mind is to enable relativism. It does not exist to actually make affirmations that are, uh, you know, affirmations of uh, uh, of reaching and finding stuff. I'm really struck by the, your the differentiation that you make between universal communication and universal understanding. Uh, this idea of a, of of education being a pluralistic process of inquiry, and I'm wondering the the how how you might describe the particular uh, responsibilities, if I can call them that, that would fall upon that would be incumbent on the facilitator or the the teacher, and the the responsibilities that are incumbent upon the student that's entering into that process, because it seems like it's easier for the teacher to say, I'm the authority, just, just listen to what I say, memorize it, give it back to me. Then you've proven that you've done, you know, that you've learned. And this, then the student is in a, in a position where they don't have to take the responsibility for their own education. Essentially, their responsibility becomes memorizing rote knowledge. And the way that you're positing this, the way that you're putting this, it's it's an incredibly fluid process, and it places a tremendous amount of responsibility on both parties that are involved in it. So I was wondering if maybe you could articulate it a little. Yes, Stefan. So I think, you know, this is exactly where theory comes in. This is the place of theory. Theory exists to create a scaffold for communication, actually. So uh, what, what when we are talking about, uh, you know, theoretical language, uh, we are actually talking not about a language that uh, subjugates experience. We are talking about a language that enables, you know, possibilities of communication, of understanding, uh, you know, the meta-categories, meta-categories that allow us to, uh, uh, you know, kind of let various, uh, you know, articulations of experience um, talk across borders. So I think that's the reason why when we are talking about uh, the responsibility of the facilitator or teacher and, and of the students, 
there's there's two major responsibilities. One is to help them to arrive at this kind of a theoretical scaffold. Uh, how can they, uh, you know, translate their experiences into a communicable theoretical frame or theoretical framework that works? Uh, how can they engage with the world of theory that has already been extended and how can they treat it creatively? Uh, you know, that, that that's uh, they, they can create their own theories uh, and that's the, the creation of a theoretical framework. And on the other hand, uh, how can they be true to their experience? How can they really find a language for that which is not encompassed by theory? That which is, uh, you know, the the emerging uh, out of non-verbal uh, experience often. How can they find some language that is, is true to it and then bring that into engagement with uh, a, a, an appropriate theoretical frame? So these are, uh, you know, methodologies. I mean, that's, so that, that's what we come to. We come to experience, theory, and method. Uh, all these three have to be involved in our uh, the, the question of responsibility. How do we help people to arrive at appropriate uh, experience, at appropriate articulations of experience, theoretical frameworks, and systematic methodologies of, uh, of proceeding? Yeah, I think there's a, a real tension there between uh, the direct experience and having a theoretical or methodological framework that you can adopt uh, temporarily to help you understand that experience. Otherwise, the experience runs the risk of becoming inchoate. Yes, and these are really, I mean, we're going back to the idea of, uh, you know, hermeneutics of imminence. Uh, these are methodologies of becoming. In other words, systematic approaches to becoming, you know, how can we, you know, just like we uh, read uh, Bergson today it, through the eyes of uh, of Gilles Deleuze, who talks about him in terms of opening up intuition as method, right? Uh, how can we find methodical approaches to intuition? Uh, you know, that, that's actually central to this whole idea of a imminent hermeneutics, you know. Um, and the, the method to your madness, your your particular madness, is yours. So, I mean, ultimately, uh, we are trying to, you know, the responsibility you're talking about is to help people to arrive at a, a systematic method that is only theirs. You know, it's not, I mean, we can, again, theoretically classify them as qualitative, quantitative, uh, you know, things like that, uh, theoretical, etc. But uh, deep down, it's actually finding a system that works for you. And that system may be, you know, it's always going to be actually multi-method because it's actually going to be customized to your, you know, uh, form of uh, imminent hermeneutics. And on the other hand, your theoretical framework is also going to be customized because you're engaging into communication with the body of theories that exist, but nothing exactly uh, will fit. Uh, you will have to you know, tweak whatever comes and create your own sort of world of theory. Ah, this is so beautiful. Um Definitely speaking to the experimental and kind of transdisciplinary approaches to to the academy, and um, and how I mean it, it just speaks to how this department and CIS in general is sort of on the periphery of the, the mainstream academics because because we're engaging in questions like this, which a lot of the mainstream academics don't necessarily. Um, and that takes us to uh, a really important class that I took that you've introduced into the department, knowledge, work, and the modern academy. And sort of starting, this would this would touch upon the world aspect of the cardinal points of EWP, being able to critically look at ourselves situated in modernity and some some what are the assumptions that may be guiding and forming our subjectivity. 
Um, and there's a, just an interesting, we were speaking about language and um, I'll get you, Debashish, to sort of talk about that course a little bit. And um, But there's a great quote that I read the other day from Nietzsche from The Twilight of the Gods. Just one line here. I'm afraid we are not rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. And that sort of blew my mind, but it, it speaks exactly to that point that you were saying, like, we can't assume this logocentrism. We need to be able to use grammar, but we can't be bound by it. Is that, is that, is that what, where he's coming from? And Nietzsche would probably launch right into uh, the starting point of this course that you're teaching as well. So why don't you take it from here? <laughs> yeah, indeed. I, I, I completely agree. That's, that's a really powerful quote from Nietzsche, you know, and, uh, you know, Nietzsche is really standing at the fountainhead of, uh, of modern studies, I think, because he's really opening up this entire, uh, you know, kind of trajectory of pluralism and of multiple forms of becoming, multiple forms of uh, meaning, meaning making. Uh, and so uh, Knowledge Work and the Modern Academy is a course that I created for beginning students, uh, whether in the master's or the PhD program, to engage with some of these very ideas that we are talking about and sense the kind of academics that uh, we can create for ourselves. In that course, they get a view of the history of, uh, of, of, of knowledge, the history of epistemology. How has knowledge uh, been approached by humanity? How have uh, academies uh, come into uh, you know, institutional form? And where do we stand today in that? Uh, how have we arrived into modernity? So because uh, when we are talking about the modern academy, the modern academy is ubiquitous. It's, it's omnipresent. It's everywhere. Um, and, you know, that's also, it's partly a translation project. That's partly why we can translate from place to place. We can come from anywhere in the world and apply to anywhere else in the world and, uh, you know, be assessed and be integrated into another um, institutional system because it's a, cent a, cent a kind of a worldwide uh, system. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, the easy way to think about it is that there is a uniformity across the world. And there's always a tendency towards that, a tendency towards teaching the same things and having a kind of a hegemonic uh, map which becomes uh, universal. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there is the possibility we are talking about that, uh, you know, there's radically different, ultimately radically plural, going down to every individual making up their own methods and their own theories, right, um, of inquiry. Um, and if we are going to look at the second form, how do we engage with a universal uh, model of uh, modernity, a model of, uh, you know, of one humanity in a, in a sense? Um, and the answer is exactly what we were discussing, that uh, one has to be able to translate across borders and translate into meta-categories uh, that ultimately are always approximate. And I think the approximation is good because it's, it's, an, it's a creative envelope. Nothing is finalized. Everything in its approximate nature uh, has a, a kind of an envelope of uncertainty. And that envelope of uncertainty is creative. It allows us to further the process towards integrality. So in that, in that course, that's, that's uh, the kind of, uh, you know, invitation uh, to the students to open up to these types of ideas at the inception of their entry into graduate studies in East-West psychology so that they can carry these ideas into their, um, you know, courses and ultimately into their research process. 
it was you, you what you brought to mind um i, I don't know the, the particular context of that quote but it, it made me think of chomsky for some reason and this idea that there's a that there might very well be a universal grammar. So I mean, maybe maybe these are very different. What they're talking about is very different. But I think that there is a tension also there between this the idea that there is there is some. I mean, it's almost a perennialist view that there is some universal grammar that we can tap into, learn, master, and. As a as opposed to this kind of radical plurality, wherein each individual creates their own methods, and how and learn to, I'm thinking what's what's popping into my head is just the very first line of the Hebrew Bible. You know that where God manifests the world through the Word, I mean it's there in the Gospel of John as well. This idea that the world is manufactured. From language, so grammar is the is the the method that God uses. It's in, it's kind of inherent to the process of becoming, in a way. Yeah. So so you know, Stefan, you you've touched on I think something really central to all that we are discussing, which we and 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 uh, you know, Jonathan used the word logocentric. Uh, it. It comes to what we're really discussing is logocentrism. And we are talking about two kinds of logocentrism. We are talking about God's grammar. And God's grammar is not man's grammar. This is the point that we are trying to make. You know, structuralism, where we talk about Chomsky or we, we talk about, uh, you know, um, you know, Saussure, uh, these people are invested in universal grammars. They're invested in structuralism, uh, 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 generative grammars, something that across cultures one can uh, arrive at, which uh, gives us the ability to understand language, language as a universal given. But, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded you're talking about, uh, you know, the Bible uh, and things like that. I'm reminded of the Tower of Babel, the whole myth of the Tower of Babel. We start with that assumption that we can actually build a, a structure to heaven because we all agree on the structural uh, dynamics. We all agree that there are universal structures that will lead us there. But the further we go, it's, it's again a little like quantum mechanics, right? The further we go, the more hazy it becomes. And at a certain point, up to that, up to that point, everything works. Structure, structuralism works fine up to a certain point. But at a certain point, we realize that everybody's speaking a different language. That's the point. That, that's the point when pluralism begins, so, you know, the post-structural is the recognition of that. And I think uh, that is actually when, where we, uh, as California Institute of Integral Studies and East-West Psychology come in, is that we are saying that there is a logos. It is not the logos of structuralism, but it is the paradoxical logos that goes beyond structuralism to that vanishing point that is at once plural and uh, one, uh, you know, that we cannot articulate through the mind, but we can study and we can actually create a field of uh, plural becoming that, uh, you know, engages our other forms of experience. I find it interesting, find it interesting that in that the story of the Tower of Babel, uh, God basically destroys the tower and he confounds the languages. So on, on some level, we're blaming God for this. And it seems to me, I mean, the thought just popped into my head, that what we need to do is to take responsibility ourselves for this and to stop blaming the Father, stop blaming. The, the Father, in that case, is, is the, you know, I mean, the, the Freudian or Lacanian Father. It's It's the rational father, the phallocentric father, uh, or the phallogocentric father, where, you know, Derrida is compounding uh, the phallus and the logos, right? That's the father that destroys it. But he just, that father behind that father is, you know, the, 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 the polis, the plural polis. 
right? Uh, that we haven't reached. This is a f fascinating conversation, getting into some super central points to uh, the kind of work that's going on, um, especially in EWP. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about the ways in which the psyche, the self-consciousness, let's say, has we, we experience these, these concepts um, through, through a structuralist lens and through a post-structuralist lens. Are we bound by language? Is there a master signifier? Along, things along those lines. Now, maybe we could talk a little bit more about this, maybe the psyche specifically in some of the thinkers that we use in the department, like Jung. Um, but also, I wanted to push the question into also the, the unconscious, uh, because again, there's different perspectives on how we approach the unconscious. Is it, is it organized by language or not? Is it asignifying? Is it, does it demand us to find new languages to help understand, or understand it? And maybe just uh, pushing a little bit more into the post-structuralism, I'm thinking specifically of Deleuze, but Guattari, who, who has a, a sort of a, a very post-structural sense of the unconscious. Uh, which would be different from the Jungian idea of the unconscious. And maybe Debussy, you could just sort of touch upon some of these things and take it where you where you feel you want it to, to go. No, I think, uh, you know, we have different uh, conversation partners, uh, even with regard to modern studies and with regard to East-West psychology. And I think Jung definitely opens up, uh, you know, areas and possibilities that are very rich and creative. Uh, even when we are talking about structuralism, he's very, very aware of the plural nature of uh, uh, codes and symbols and things like that. Uh, you know, the, the term "the unconscious" is structured like a uh, is structured like language is is really Lacan's. And uh, essentially, what is the structure of the unconscious? I mean, it's a slippery structure. You know, it's it's not a a structure of a universal grammar. Uh, you know, it's it's a structure that's creatively slippery. So uh, there are signifiers, there are you know networks of possibility in terms of how they interact. You know, but there is a a kind of a you know open endedness to it all. There's a complete open-endedness to it all. So recognizing, I mean, I think that's the reason why we are not here to dismantle structuralism completely. Even post-structuralism is not a dismantling of structuralism. It's a recognition of its limits, but it's a moving with it and opening it up. And I think that's the, you know, kind of way in which uh, we, we can find languages uh, that don't exist, uh, and that uh, we, you know, when we talk about the West, our, uh, one of our major uh, strengths uh, and our major uh, theoretical, uh, you know, kind of lenses is Jung, uh, is, is depth psychology. But along with it, we bring in exactly what you said, people like Guattari, who uh, allow us to open it up further and, uh, you know, make it into a, a, an inquiry that uh, can be customized for individual becoming. Great. Yeah, thank you. Um, we don't have too much time. We've been, uh, the time for me has passed very quickly. We've covered a lot of uh, the, the things that I think uh, we set out to cover. Um, one thing, I wanted to touch upon some of the work that you do outside of the department um, that is is in your teaching, um, maybe not as explicit, but the, the idea of posthumanism. Um, a lot of the ideas that we've talked about today can be can be tied up within the ways in which you're um, engaging in the posthuman discourse. Um, could you talk to that a little bit? How that comes into your work in the department, and how what you're doing outside of the department um, in that field? Yeah, sure. Uh, so. To contextualize post-humanism, it's a kind of a contemporary uh, theoretical field, and uh, it has arisen uh, due to a variety of reasons, uh, primarily because uh, humanism is uh, almost a synonym for the modern, 
And as we were discussing, uh, we start off uh, into our modern era from around the 16th century with an image of the human. That's why we talk about the Renaissance as a period of humanism. We say that we decenter God and centralize the human, right? But when we say that, what do we mean by the human? This becomes a question. And the human gradually becomes defined. And particularly in the post-enlightenment period, the human is, is the rational being, is the being that uses mind to understand the laws of God. It's exactly what we are talking about. The logocentric being is the human. And in doing that, we find that we subjugate our other ways of knowing. We subjugate the non-Western. We subjugate ed- anything that we create binaries with, with the privileging of the rational. The male is privileged uh, as the quintessential rational being. And, uh, you know, there, there is a subjugation of the feminine. Uh, there is a subjugation of the animal, of the earth, uh, and, and ultimately the extension of the male as a rational being is the world of machines. So we create a cyber reality, uh, an artificial intelligence that ultimately uh, the mind aspires to be subsumed by. That's the whole extropian idea of, of uh, you know, what we call transhumanism. So uh, post-humanism has arisen in response to that, particularly critical post-humanism. And uh, it goes back to the defining moments of modernity and says that we need other definitions of the human. We need to kind of dismantle this image of the human, and we need to make it into a field that uh, is, again, as we were saying, pluralizing what it means to be human, so that the post-human, in a certain sense, particularly as I understand it, is exactly the integral, is exactly the vanishing point of plural understandings of the human, where the human is not fixed. The human is transitional. We are tasked with the creative job of making the human or making that which exceeds our present understanding of the human. So uh, uh, my uh, work uh, has been towards engaging Indian notions of spirituality and yoga uh, as forms of uh, becoming with post-humanism. I see them as post-human. I think the importance of yoga is not a continuation of innumerable historical traditions that were invented for certain goals of becoming in their own time and contexts, but to utilize these uh, methodologies of becoming to create one's own methodologies of becoming post-human in our times, engaging the questions of our times, uh, because there are serious questions in our times. We have the modern problematic. What is the modern problematic? And how do we uh, create answers to that through becoming? That's the notion of post-humanism. I have uh, been uh, in, involved in post-humanist studies. I held some conferences as well as I have an edited book uh, on critical post-humanism. And just recently, uh, I co-founded an Indian post-humanism network, um, w- which is... Uh, you know, trying to ask these kinds of questions with regard to, um, you know, pluralizing the understanding of post-humanism. What does it mean in Indian studies, for example? So that's the way in which I've been engaged in this field. 
great. Thanks for sharing all of that. There's also a conference on the horizon with that group. It's supposed to be in early June. Uh, we, I'm not really sure whether we'll postpone it, but uh, mm-hmm. yes, it's early June and there is a, a, a call for papers uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, available if uh, people are interested in knowing more about it. Uh, you know, so uh, there's also a website right posthumanism.in that you can visit to uh, know more about this work great yeah we'll be posting uh, links in the the description box um, of this podcast I also want to just bring to uh, attention uh, last couple books that you've written um, that we do study in the department Um, the seven quartets of becoming um, which is from from five six years ago now. It's a beautiful example of uh, of all the things that we've been studying in terms or talking about today in terms of technologies of becoming. Um, and you're looking at Shirobindo's framework that he used. And then another book that was released, I guess, last year: Meditations on the Isha Upanishad, tracing the philosophical vision of Sri Aurobindo, which is also a fantastic book and very important in yoga studies and integral yoga studies. Uh, Stefan, do you have anything that you'd like to to close up with, or any closing remarks? No, I, I would. I would just like to invite Debashish back because the I think this was a great conversation, and I think there's so much more to be said. Yeah, absolutely, Debashish. Anything that you'd like to close out with today? Not really. I think uh, you know it's been it's been a pleasure talking to both of you, and I think we really uh, opened up a wonderful kind of conversation, uh, meaningful conversation that I enjoyed very much. Great. Well, we'll definitely have you back again, uh, maybe to, to delve deeper into uh, a couple of the concepts that were raised today. Because we, we covered a lot of territory today, but maybe we'll we'll try to hone in and deepen some of these uh, discussions. Sure. Um, but thanks for being with us. We'll wrap it up here. Thanks, Stefan. Thanks, Debashish. We'll see you again soon. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Debashish. Thank you. Thank you.